Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote A couple of months ago, we started working in partnership with Atia, which is a Māori consulting firm. One of the Tumuaki, the leads of Atia, is Hinerangi Edwards. She's not who we're interviewing on the show, but she posted on LinkedIn a while back calling out a job description for a policy advisor role, which had a bunch of essential traits, things like understanding the machinery of government, experience giving advice to ministers, a sound understanding of the policy process, things like that were listed as essential. In the not essential but nice to have category was an understanding of te ao Māori. The comments ripping out that job description were kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time. Because public service today in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we cannot do this well without an understanding of te ao Māori. But you are listening to this show, so you probably already know this, and you're probably already on your journey of building your own capability in te reo Māori, tikanga Māori, your understanding of te ao Māori. But that doesn't mean it's easy. And what I've heard and learned from lots of conversations is how hard it can be to navigate the different beliefs that are programmed into yourself, the different cultural norms within your organization, the lack of emphasis put on the importance of relationships as a way of being and a way of doing public service mahi. If you spend any time thinking about this, researching, doing any work, playing a role in between or with Māori and the Crown, then before long you will come across an organisation which is at the prow of that waka. And that organisation is Te the Office for Crown Māori Relations. Te means the bridge, and the organisation was established in 2018 by Cabinet to work towards true treaty partnership. Today on the show, we are very privileged to have the first Tumuaki, the Chief Executive of Te Arafiti, Lil Anderson. And I am grateful to Sally Washington, one of Lil's colleagues from the Australia New Zealand School of Government, for connecting us. Kia ora to you, Sally. And of course, we start off today's episode with, well, the first question, the only first question really, which is, ko wai koe? Nor why queer? Who are you, Lil? And from whose waters? From which waters do you flow? And from there, we hear about the influence of people like Dame Fina Cooper, whose wairua, whose spirit, still lives alongside Lil today. And I just loved this conversation. Lil left me feeling powerful about my own place as a Pākehā working in and with the public service to speak up and be bolder, and push more towards being better, and know that I have a whole lot of people alongside me, and I have a whole lot of precedent behind me saying, yes, actually, we need to be doing more, and we need to be doing this better. 
And that's a nice segue into my listener shout out today, which is to Felicity Connell, someone who we've talked about this a bit together. She's just finished working with Wakatu Incorporation and she only found out about the podcast because, well, she wanted to listen to her favorite playlist on Spotify one day, but it just kept switching over to some random podcast she'd never heard before, which was her partner, Brent Thorley who works for Ihi Aotearoa and was on a road trip for his work listening to the podcast and so he kept stealing the Spotify account. So a big shout out to you both and thank you for supporting the show. But that is more than enough of an introduction from me. I think this episode is essential listening. So without further ado, please welcome to the show Lil Anderson. Hand it over to you, Ko Waikwe, no Waikwe. Ko Lo Anderson Tuku Engoa, mahi mai ki tēnei uri no Panguru, no Te Rarua, no Ngākohi Hoki, tūturu no Te Nōta, no Reira Tēnā Tata Katsua. Really great to be with you this morning and really love what you're doing. Actually, what a what a altruistic task um, <laughs> you have in front of you. But, you know, I think it is the way that we are all moving. And so good on you, I think, for getting out ahead of it. I am the youngest of 10 children, the bossiest one, apparently. <laughs> and you I have to be. I hail from Panguru in the Hokianga. So I was lucky enough to grow up there, to school there. There was a sort of full immersion school. I was lucky enough to still be living there in the era of Dame Fina Cooper. Huh. I still feel her tokotoko in my back hmm. in a number of my leadership moments, which we can have a bit of a yarn about. And I then moved to Kaikohe, first time I'd ever seen a two-story building. Uh, <laughs> the mighty Kaikohe. Yes. So, you know, that was the big smoke. Yeah. Um, me. So I schooled at Northland College. My father and mother are Te Rarua. My father is from Tangaru, born native son and native speaker of Te Reo Māori from Tangaru. And my mother is from a place called Motukaka, which is on the shores of the Hokianga Harbour. As you go across on a ferry from Rawini, you look to the left, there's this beautiful church in Marae that's okay. Uh, and she's also from Pauranga, so they lived across the hills from each other. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so I have Te Rarua Whakapapa and Apuhi Whakapapa as well. So, you know, I, I'm one of those. I married someone from Ngāti Parau. My husband is from Ngāti Parau, so everyone's like, oh, that must be but <laughs> And is it? And we raided. So we're mine. So, you know, I met my mother-in-law for the first time and she's Oh, you're that Navahi tribe. Oh, I thought, oh, <laughs> yes, that's a bit about me. I've got two beautiful daughters. And as I said to you, I've got two Mokopuna, mm. uh, age three and one. And they are who I'm dedicating a lot of my time to at the moment as I, you know, as I've been seconded here to Australia. The mm. so lucky old me. Well. <laughs> Lil. Thank you for sharing a bit about where you come from and the people who you are important in your life as well. Yeah. And that's kind of where it all starts, really. Yeah, and I was really interested to hear you mention Dame Fina Cooper. I I can't go to movies anymore, Lil, because I've got little kids and so I don't really have any spare time in my life at the moment. But I would love to go to the, 
the Fina movie that I think that's what it was called, Fina. Yeah. 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 It's really good. So can you tell me more about that connection? So she is my father's auntie. And so we're connected through Whakapapa, through the Tiwaki family. And as I was growing up, one of the sort of stories I tell in my leadership journey is we were welcoming Phil Gonf one day, which was a big deal in Pangaroo because no one ever came to Pangaroo, right? And he came in a helicopter. So Ugh. the whole school, you know, went out onto the field to meet him. And she had been teaching to Kalina hmm. because she'd wanted me to do it. And I think it was a school prize giving or something we were having. Anyway, the whole school was out on the field and, you know, I was young. My older brothers and sisters were all there, all 10 of us. And we made up most of the school, I think. And <laughs> I started prod with a tukutuku in my back and oh. it was her. And she was pushing me to the front. And I was, I led that day. I think I was seven, seven wow. years old. <laughs> but that memory sticks very strongly in my head. You know, I had my mm. brothers and sisters looking at me like, What's she doing? So yeah, I got to I got to lead our kura mm. that day. And then I, I suppose my other memory of her is a funny one. She lived up near the convent and we used to go and steal her apples and oranges out of her orchard. Mm. And she could be seen. You know, she was really sprightly. <laughs> well, so we used to get chased out of her orchard. Uh, and she's going to run through with her top of the wall and to get out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel really lucky. Obviously, I didn't realize how amazing all these great, great things she'd done. Hmm. She was just a woman in our community who always said what she meant. I've taken a lot from that actually in my career and she's also a person who put people first and I'd like to say that you know the grounding my parents gave me around being humble and hardworking, mm. you know muscled in with I think her fiery spirit and wanting to get things done I, I think it shaped me more than more than I realized at the mm. time <laughs> yeah one of those experiences that at the time you just kind of went what's the big deal and then later <laughs> on you realize Actually, being pushed out the front to, you know, Phil Goff and whatever position he was in yeah. that position that stage. I can't remember. Yeah. I, I can't remember what he was <laughs> at that time. But he, yeah, it was, the helicopter was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> that in itself. That's how got flooded. It was around uh, the time there were big floods and we had to actually go and school on the marae. Mm. And so we went to school on the marae for about six months. Mm. Well, they repaired our school. Okay. Yeah. So I think it was around that. So it must have been something around, I don't know, education. Mm. And how was that experience on the marae, having your education there rather than in the school? Did you want to go back to the school afterwards or not? No, nobody did. Mm. You know, because you just feel so safe and warm mm. in your whare tūpuna. And mm. we all felt sort of enveloped in the arm during our learning. And I, I think it was a wonderful experience to have. I wonder if we don't do it. I wonder if we do it enough these days, mm. actually. And it almost, I might be taking a metaphor a bit far here, Lil, but it almost strikes me that that's a bit of what your mahi is, is actually providing that safe space and those arms around uh, Māori in the public service, but also people who are working alongside Māori in the public service to say, yeah. You know, here we go, we can be together, learn together, grow together. 
Yeah, that's quite right. I, you know, I often describe our role when I'm talking to my staff, you know, we have to be the hand in the smaller people's backs, <laughs> uh, you know, that is, that is either pushing them. No. <laughs> um, here's is, here's Dame Fina coming through again. Yeah. <laughs> that is giving them comfort. I think about, you know, taking the next step. It's a very patient role to have to take and it can be frustrating. But then we, we've gone to see some amazing things through Tiarafati and mm. through its predecessors, you know, in the Office of Treaty Settlements. Mm. I feel very lucky that we have this role. Mm. I think for years, Paul, we, people tried the stick which was, you must be better. How terrible mm. are you? No one really responds to that very mm. well. No just one. creates fucking yeah. and shame and guilt for right. everybody. Yeah. It should feel like a logical thing for people to do, mm. to learn more, to be more, to be different. So hopefully, you know, we're providing that opportunity. We're doing quite a few different things to try and help not just the public service on its journey, but also Māori. Mm. Mm. Um, we've got a really important, as our name suggests, bridging. Well, I always say to people, you know, Tiarafiti is literally the bridge and that's what we're trying to be. Mm. And there's a lot of challenges on both sides of that bridge. You know, government has its own challenges. And if you imagine Māori on the other side, it's a really great way to describe it. It's, it's Minister Calvin Davis's description. You know, you have town Māori on one side of the bridge and you have the world of government mm. on the other. And he talks about who has had to cross that bridge more mm. in our history to learn the other's processes, to understand the lenses, and it's very clearly one-way traffic mm. most of the time. So I think what we're trying to do is bring some balance back. Maybe if we could go back, for some people listening, they may not have heard for, of Tiarafiti, and I still I still have this moment where I mention Tiarafiti to people, and who I think should know about Tiarafiti, and they go, "What's Tiarafiti?" And I go, "Oh no!" <laughs> so, can you share from your perspective what is significant about Tiarafiti? I think what people will know is governments in the past have always been really committed to treaty settlements. So, you know, there's a reason for that. We've got to restore the broken promises that have been made and restore a relationship that's been broken, I think, mm -hmm. by those promises. So for a number of years, you know, you've had the Office of Treaty Settlements and its predecessor, the Treaty of Waitangi Policy Unit, working away at negotiating with groups the settlement of their claims. And so that's the sort of place I started. You know, I, I sort of started a journey with the New Zealand Māori Council first. That's where I, I right. first worked. Then I worked with the Crown Forestry Rental Trust. Then I moved to the Office of Treaty Settlements. And yeah, there's this really important role there of restoring, I think, a relationship that's been broken. I suppose what Te Arafiti did in I think it was the year of 2017, the new late, the relatively new Labour government at Cabinet had agreed that actually they wanted to look beyond treaty settlements mm. and try and understand what does the Māori Crown relationship look like when we're not just negotiating mm. treaty settlements. 
it's a it's a phenomenal thing to think about. I think <laughs> some people had thought, you know, you settle those treaty claims and then everybody's happy. <laughs> Job um, done. Move on. Mm, <laughs> no. <laughs> and the world's a better place. All you do, I think, is restore it to a place where there's a chance that partnership. You don't do any more than that through mm. treaty settlement. So it was around that time that the portfolio of Māori Crown Relations was born and Minister Davis was the inaugural and is the inaugural minister. He did something really different, Paul, which I really admire. We had to work out what is this that we're doing? It was an amazing opportunity. And he said, well, why don't we go and ask Māori what they want? Oh, novel. So what we then did was we went out across the country how 33 hui it was supposed to be 17 but if you've been on a sort of engagement path you know that you know a fan that a gets one kaitaia yeah <laughs> nelson gets one raymouth wants one so the question we were asking was what you know what is it you want from the maori crown relationship mm. that's some really clear messages from that from that series of hui and that's what has shaped not just the portfolio, but the other 50 years in organisation. Mm. And um, Lil, can I ask, how was that experience for you personally? Oh, I loved it. You know, I've spent a lot of my career in the communities themselves, and that's what I love. It's, it's the thing that makes me get up out of bed mm. every morning. It's not to go and sit behind my desk and write emails. I really <laughs> love being out and about with our people because mm. they're amazing. So it was a little bit confronting because mm. I've been in public service for a number of years and often the critique really was about a public service that mm. wasn't doing enough to work hand in hand with Māori. And, you know, what I love about my people is they can be very, very clear <laughs> about what they want instead. Mm. So we literally were on the road for about four months. Mm. And we went to every part of the country. I think we got wow. a, around 2,000 submissions as well. And that's how the portfolio was born. And that's how Te Arifati was born. One of the key things Māori said was we need an organisation in the public service that is just focused on the mm. relationship, mm. that isn't focused on widgets, but mm. is focusing on, you know, what is this relationship between government and Māori. They also told us that the engagement that they were having with the public service wasn't good. Mm. I won't go further with that. They talked to us about the capability that was lacking mm. in public servants in order to work with them. And they also said, you don't seem to know the meaning of partnership mm. in, in the public service. So mm. Those three things, I think, are the aspects of Minister Davis's portfolio that we look after. Mm. If you think about, I think about Te Arifiti as a bit of a journey. You've got the treaty settlement space, which mm. is, you know, we are nearing the end. She mm. says touching wood and recognising that Napoli is still to come. We are nearing the end of treaty settlements and we are also on a journey with our Taku Taimwana. So Te Arifiti, takes care of those things in order to restore the relationship back to some equilibrium. Mm. Um, if you then think about, you know, a journey of a relationship, one of the other functions we've got is we've made over 10,000 promises <laughs> through treaty settlements mm. and we're not going to have another chance to restore this relationship. So we're really focused on 
how do we make sure that the Crown and its agencies meet those promises? That's a lot of promises. How? It's a, <laughs> well, that's a big database. <laughs> it really is. And that's yeah. exactly what we've done. We've, mm-hmm. we've created a tool which is accessible to iwi, to mm-hmm. local councils, because wow. they have some of the commitments as well, and to the public service. And you can track which commitments have been met and huh. Meant, and which ones haven't? Wow, and there are a lot that haven't. Yeah, like of of the ten thousand, how where are we at? I can't even think how many <laughs> are not met. And I think you know to be clear about the commitments, some of them are as simple as we will transfer this piece of land, mm. you know, on the enactment of your settlement. Mm-hmm. Even some of that hasn't happened yet, but a lot, most of it has. So mm. it's you transferred, you know, straight away. But there are some that are trickier. There are some that say, we're going to work in partnership with, let's say, the Department of Conservation. It's hard to track, you know, mm. that's going well or not for anyone anyway. Mm. So there's a big focus in our space on meeting those promises. Mm. It's not all sugar and roses, you mm. know, because the relationships hit rough patches. Yeah. After settlement, so we find ourselves often often acting as a broker between Māori and the particular agency. Mm. So if that's part of the journey, you know, you've restored the relationship, you've then put some focus into sustaining it, making sure that it continues mm. to be a trustworthy one. Then we think about Minister Davis's portfolio as that is about building to what the partnership that the treaty foretold mm. really, and trying to get us back to the day on the bluff on, in 1840 where mm. we're full of hope about what the treaty would bring for this country. And I feel like, you know, part of our job is to get us back there. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk, that metaphor of the bridge is, is really helpful, isn't it? So yeah. you talked before about Māori crossing the bridge a lot to learn Pākehā customs, language, yeah, whether through choice or force. Yeah. And and now, you know, there's a Pākehā need to cross the bridge the other way. I mean, how much progress do you think we're making and, and have made in the last six, seven years? I've been... You know, I it's never fast enough for me. <laughs> That's what I would start by saying. Mm. I'm not the most patient person on a good day, but I have seen more movement in the last six years than I probably have seen in the last 20 Yeah. before that. And I think that's not just, you know, treaty settlements are ending and now we're looking forward. There's another factor, I think, which has been really important, which is we are continuing to see statistics for Māori sit in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after 50, 60 years of the public service doing things the same way and getting the same results, mm-hmm. it feels like people have woken up and gone, hey, mm-hmm. why don't we try something different? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's just like it's in plain sight. I don't mm-hmm. understand why, why we haven't. Yeah. But this idea of working with Māori on some of not just the problems, because we're very, you know, I think we're often very focused on the negative statistics, but on all, some of the opportunities, mm. I suppose. And we've been really lucky, I think, to be at the forefront of some of that movement. So mm. 
you know, I would say we've made a good start. The proof is going to be in the pudding in terms of, you know, as we see this capability growing, what difference is it making to the lives of Māori? Because that's really the overall measure. Mm. How close are we getting to what the treaty promised? Mm. And, you know, that's the greatest yardstick or outcomes framework. If you want to be a lash bureaucrat, that's the greatest outcomes framework I think we could ever want. Mm. And from what I notice, the kind of that capability and motivation to work in partnership under Tetiriti is so varied, you know, across departments and within departments. You know, I've been in Hui where you have one person in a department questioning why we part- would partner with Māori, why do we need a Hui Māori, and then you have others in there who are just shaking their heads. And so it's, it's so varied, and I'm sure and you, you see that as well. And, and one thing I, who was it? It was Chris Finlayson. He, he wrote an article recently on Etangata, which got shared all over LinkedIn. And it, he talked about there's a lot of people in the public service now who can do a karakia, they can do their pepeha, but they still don't get the essence yeah. of it. They don't truly get it. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, and I, I remember when he was my minister, he used to get so frustrated. Why can't people see it loud? Because, you know, he was one of those people that got it very quickly, got the essence. I, I think I think what I'm seeing and what we've got, Paul, is, is a new public service act that actually says to us, it's not a choice anymore. You know, it's not an add-on to your job as a public servant mm-hmm. to we support the Māori Crown relationship. It actually is your job. I think that's a really important lever because actually, and Minister Davis said this at a conference full of public servants, he said, if you're not prepared to take that journey mm-hmm. across the bridge, you shouldn't be in the public service. And, you know, I think I see the range of people. I don't think they do it in front of me, but I see the range of people you do as well, where there mm-hmm. are some who are still you know, baffled mm. about mm. why we would do this. Baffled is the exact word, yeah. Other, you know, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there are these people who have been championing it for a long time. The movement I've seen is there are less people down that other end mm. Mm. of the spectrum now because they know that it's not good enough. Mm. We've now been able to, you know, chief executives have it in their performance agreements mm. to grow their own capability and to grow the capability of their people. Mm. And not just, like you say, it's not just about mahi-mahi, it's not just about pepeha, it's it's really about how do you, you know, understanding the treaty, understanding the history of our country, mm. not because you want to be a historian, but because it's mm. important for you to do your job. Mm. Then there's this real knuckle around engagement. I do this. I run a masterclass here in Australia and I do this little skit where I do. <laughs> you should watch it. I might see <laughs> really funny. Okay. Where you do this bad example of engagement and it's what you said to me at the start of our conversation. It's a public servant talking about KPIs and a policy that has to go to ministers tonight and are you okay with it because we've done some research and we've got some data and it sounds like you know this is what you need so I hope mm. you have you know mm. that sort of thing mm. trust um, me i've got it sort of <laughs> yeah i'm from government and i'm here to help right through to, and then we do a second one which you know still isn't perfect because the control still sits 
very much in the government space, but it's working in co-design and partnership words that are very overused these days, but it is real engagement that is based on the need, the outcomes that that Māori community is seeking and being able to build your policy from that. I, I think that's one of the greatest things we have to learn. Mm. I find it very easy. You know, I, I have ears that can hear it. Mm. When Māori are sitting there and telling you, here are the things I want, here are some things I think we could do together. But I, I just don't know sometimes how do you teach people how to mm. listen, listen differently? How do you teach people that you, your first move when you write a policy shouldn't be to research data it should be to go and talk to people i continue to say that you know if we're writing policies about fixing poverty how can we write it if we don't know what it's like to be poor and it's just how do you get more of that lived experience real Mm. life real-time data into some of the work we're doing Mm. sorry as you can tell, I'm so passionate about this stuff. Um, <laughs> no apology <laughs> needed, Lil. And that was my exact experience of policy work to begin with, was sitting in the, the glass tower and and doing research. And, and it just didn't sit well with me that I was writing these documents that were so disconnected from the people that we were meant to be serving. And sometimes they were treated a little bit like an enemy. So I hear, hear what you're saying there. Yeah. And and I was also listening to you and, and the language that you were using and wondering, you know, you, you said some of the words are overused, partnerships and co-design. And one colleague in a ministry that we're working with at the moment has said, don't ever use the word consultation. Don't ever use the word engagement and don't ever use the word advisory when you're talking to or working with Māori. And so I think it's okay that we've got some new jargon that we're throwing around because we kind of have to get rid of some of the old words too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, replacing the word consultation was probably the best thing we've ever done because consultation sort of gave people nicer not to do much. So, Mm. you know, I think engagement's not the perfect word, but there are scales of engagement and there are scales of partnership, I think, that mm. we're starting to see emerge. I am starting to see across the public service, you know, such great effort in the partnership space. Mm. I think six years ago, you know, we asked people to talk about their partnerships. Every single one of those conversations, Paul, was a contract. You know, yeah. and I'm, I'm sitting there going, a contract for services is not a partnership. <laughs> I pay people to deliver something. Nowadays, you know, we are talking about a co-delivered set of services, a co-designed policy, and, you know, that is is not the final place we want to be, of course, Mm. but a much better place Mm. than where we were before. And so I I hope I've got the patience to continue to watch that that journey, but I, I have seen movement. It gives me great hope. But I, I do I do wonder how do you make that journey faster? Because, you know, there are some really encouraging stats coming out of corrections and employment. But how do you put all of those things together? How do you improve education? You know, teaching our own history is a great move. So I'm just sort of, you know, I'm at this place of what are some of the bigger moves mm. we can start to make that make that journey a little bit faster. Mm. That's what happens when I get time to think. 
Oh, you've been over on the Gold Coast for four months. You've had a, maybe a little bit more time and space <laughs> and fewer people tapping you on the shoulder. And <laughs> what, what are your reflections, Lil, on what might make the biggest difference? I, I think we've got to find, you know, partnerships that work. We've got to, I think, demonstrate the model that people are using because at the moment there's, there's no standard. There okay. is no standard for partnership other than, oh, that looks good. Mm. And, oh, they signed a partnership agreement. So we need to start defining what does good partnership look mm. like? What are the features of it? And how do you achieve it? I think mm. that one of the things we really need to move on. Australia has some really, even though I think their journey has been different. So, you know, ours has been very linear. Our, our relationship journey. So we've okay. done this, and then we've done that, and then we've done that. Australia's sort of jumping. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, in some places, they've already started partnerships with right. some of the Indigenous or people here, some of the First Nations people, but haven't yet said sorry. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. Right. Know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, each to their own, and it's, mm. it's the sort of manamutu haki, I suppose, mm. of the people here to decide what's appropriate. But there are some partnerships that they have that are really quite innovative, particularly out in some of the more rural areas, like here in Queensland, which I'm looking at, you know, there's a lot of devolution, dare mm. I use the D word, and there is a lot of local decision-making without much reference to state or federal government. Yeah. I tried not to, I'm going to try not to mention this too much in our trading negotiations with Ngāpuhi, but Melbourne have a fund called a sovereignty fund mm. and that's determination. Right. So that's the way they're working through their pathway to treaty. So what, what is it, exactly does that mean? I think it's, it's really a, a fund that is about the local mobs, as they're called here, being able to find their, I, I know. Sorry, yeah. When they started using that word, I was like, oh, that's a different word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is different content. <laughs> but that is the word that both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people feel pretty comfortable with. Oh, okay. They right. use it themselves. So, right. you know, I sit here and I still can't use it. I say tribes and they all look at me and go, yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fund that has been specifically set up or mobs in and around Victoria to decide their best pathway back to a place where they are making their own decisions. They right. can call it, whether it's through building new business, whether it's through rebuilding decision-making infrastructure, or whether it's through creation of jobs or a path to treaty. Mm. It, it is one of the most open funds I've ever seen. Yeah. Very little criteria around it, but... And who makes the decisions on it? I I think there's been a commission of Aboriginal Mm. and Torres Strait Island leaders who decide how and and when to use Mm. the funds. So I'm having a look at all of these really interesting things over here that might start to, to, I think, pull some of the criteria Mm. that we should be applying partnership. And one of the things that's popping to my head here is a quote from Kellyanne McKircher, I think that's the book that you chose. And she, they said, there's no co-design without co-decide. Yes. And so I'm, I'm interested in what you're seeing 
in terms of that actual power sharing. So if, if we're talking about a partnership, in my head, it's not a partnership unless we've both got decision-making authority. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of good practice and practice that makes you scratch your head? Some of the encouraging things are around, here I use the word co-governance. There are some really great models. There was a model that emerged around the rebuilders, the Manawatu Court, where the, I think it's four or six local iwi sat at the governance table with, you know, the transport agency, with and Hogan, okay. you know, with the engineers, and they were at the very top table of every decision. Mm-hmm. Not not just the part that related to Māori stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Māori stuff wasn't relegated to number 10 on the agenda and they were invited in. They mm-hmm. are there to talk about money. They are there to talk about design, all of those things. And mm-hmm. you know, it was one of the examples that I've seen where it really is the closest I've seen to, I suppose, co-governance or mm-hmm. joint decision making. One of the problems with it, of course, is we continue in government to hold a legislative power, and I'm not suggesting constitutional change for those that might get up in arms. We still have the legislative, the regulatory powers, and we still have absolute accountability. You know, I'm very clear I work for government. As Māori as I am, I'm accountable for the spend, I'm accountable for all those things. Mm. But I still think there is a ton of room between being accountable and sharing decision-making. So we haven't explored some of that. The recent Matariki holiday <laughs> was probably more decided by Māori rather mm. than government. You know, that was a sort of co-governance, co-operations approach, and it was completely based on Matauranga Māori. Mm. Right, the dates for the next 30 years are purely based on Mātauranga Māori. Mm. The way that we respect the fact that, you know, it might be Puanga or it might be Matariki, that different parts of New Zealand celebrate differently. That's mm. Māori. You know, mm. that is Mātauranga Māori. Mm. In some ways, all we did was provide the legislative framing and made sure that the words on the page reflected what they wanted. Yeah. You wouldn't have seen that, I don't think, 10 years ago. No, no. You know, the way we're dealing with Spectrum, having very adult conversations with a range of Māori organisations about 6, 7, 8G. <laughs> See, I don't know which G we're up to. I don't to. know what that is, yeah. We, I know we're through 5G, but yeah, right. I remember when we first entered into the Spectrum conversations, I didn't know what half the words meant. <laughs> Um, so we are starting to see some really great movement in that mm. partnership space. I think the pathway Oranga Tamariki is on in terms of, you know, that's always a hard conversation mm. with. Mm. No one wants to talk about what's happening to our kids and the care of our kids. But, you know, that their movement towards local decision making about the tamariki that are from there, that whakapapa there, mm. I think that is really encouraging. Mm. Well, I'm aware of our time here. I could keep asking you questions for ages. One <laughs> one more question that I do want to ask. You mentioned earlier about your impatience and you want to see change fast. And I know there's a lot of people in what can be quite lonely positions in the public service where they are the voice in their agency for working well with Māori and 
sometimes have to have some very frustrating conversations um, and have a lot of thick skin. What what message can you give to people listening about how they can work well alongside those people in those tough roles? Yeah, I think I think the first thing I would say is it is not the job of those people to take the Māori Crown relationship. All they are there to do is guide that. You know, the responsibility, the accountability sits with every single public servant. I don't care whether you are the receptionist hmm. or you are the background policy writer that never gets to go out. The onus is on you. And I think if that's a message that can continue to be reinforced, it just means that those lowly Māori advisors who sit, you know, at tier five of the organisation hmm. who have been trying for years I think to try and get movement, it means that they don't feel like the burden is on their shoulders. The second thing I think, and I've talked to, we've talked to Peter Hughes about this, is we've got to recognise the value of Matauranga Māori, mm. uh, the value of engagement skills, and um, mm. value of relationality. If that's a word. <laughs> um, is now. I always make up words. We've got to recognise and pay for the value of those skills, mm. just like we pay for a law degree, mm. just like we pay someone who has project management skills. Because actually, you know, these are the people our public service needs. Mm. We continue to put them into roles that is just you be you go be the Māori advisor and you mm. do your column of work in your silo. We're never going to get there. So, you know, I have seen a movement across some of my colleagues where they're moving Māori roles into the centre mm. and across the organisation, yeah. where they are building accountability for te ao Māori lens into everyone's job descriptions, mm. not just, uh, you know, the Māori that works in that team. Mm. So these are really encouraging things, and I continue to urge people to reach out for help if they want some, but also to feel heartened by the fact that flow is the journey and there is movement. Mm. There is more movement than I think people can see. And I, I, I also think there's this really important thing that we're doing around the Māori Crown relationship where not just it's everyone's job, but we are building, you know, the Māori lens into policy, you know, mm. we've got cabinet guidelines now that talk about tetiriti. This mm. is what, you know, you should mm. measure cabinet paper against. Like, mm. you know, that didn't exist that. five years ago when I was writing <laughs> policy <laughs> papers, no. You know, and the, uh, lots of people criticise the fact that, oh, well, it's too slow. But actually, any journey means you've got to take everyone with you. Mm. Otherwise, we're going to be left out the front by ourselves. Mm. I, I think, you know, with a longer term lens, this is the right thing to do. Mm. As I said to you, I'm really open to any suggestions. We just need some game breakers. We need some models and we need some, I think, you know, results that say to us, the stuff mm. is working mm. and how you do it. Mm. It's got to be simple enough and take the fear out of it for people. Otherwise, they just won't do it. Mm. Mm, kia ora, Lil. And as you were talking, I was getting a sense of the po of the whare being established, you know, and there's these things that are being put in place that are going to make it much easier in three years' time, five years' time for people 
to do the mahi that they're trying to do now, but the enablers aren't there yet. Yeah. I've seen, you know, a lot of networks across the public service now, a lot of Māori staff networks and, you know, it's beautiful. There's, you know, Māori leaders at all tiers of the public service now. We need more. So I really do encourage people to get into places that influence, get into roles that influence. And, you know, when there's enough of a groundswell, it's it's phenomenal. <laughs> I think what can happen. Mm-hmm. I'm such a Pollyanna. <laughs> hopeful. Oh, we we need we need hopeful optimists, Lil. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, kia ora to you, Lil. Thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah, sharing what is a really unique perspective that you've had in different roles that are almost the same kind of hat, you yeah. know. And you've you've had a really strong connection to building Crown Māori capability. It seems like from when you were seven years old and pushed yeah. out onto the marae by Dame <laughs> Fina Cooper. So is there anything else you want to share with people listening? Oh, look, I just, I want people to feel excited and challenged, hopefully, by what we've talked about today. And the one thing I just want listeners to do is, you know, if there's one thing you take away from this is, you know, go and tell someone that this is important, that actually the Māori Crown relationship is an important focus for all of us, no matter what we do. And soon enough, you know, enough people say it, mm. and it becomes a thing. So yeah. I'll, you know, I'll talk to anybody, anytime, <laughs> because it's really what what I, what I love doing. Mm. It feels like where I'm supposed to be mm. at the moment. Well, I'm not sure my tupuna encouraged me to be in Australia, but I think the work that I'm doing at the moment is where I'm supposed to be. It feels mm. like it. So I just encourage people, I think, to take some action mm. and not just think, oh, that was a nice conversation. Mm. Lil, I found this personally really mana enhancing and like you're inviting people to step into a powerful place of being able to say, this is the right thing to do. Yep. And that that's... That's actually such a nice starting point that you have that mana in behind you when you're you're in those positions. Well, Shorter yeah, Lil, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast If this episode has left you with a burning question please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Ngā mihi mō te whakarongo.